0: So tonight, um, in the name of impermanence, it's going to be a little bit different. We're not going to begin by chanting the refuges and precepts, because I want to begin by uh, speaking about Vesak, which is one of the biggest days in the Buddhist calendar, where we, it was said to be the day of the Buddha's um, birth, enlightenment, and death. And it's celebrated at different times in different traditions, but it's celebrated each year. And it's really a day where, you may have noticed, it was actually yesterday, um, but it's a day where we can really recommit and rededicate ourselves to practice. And so I want to speak about the refuges before we actually do them so that we can just take it as a time in our own lives of making... That commitment, bringing to mind what that commitment is too for our, each of us. So, just going back to it being um, the day of the Buddha's birth, enlightenment, death, well, we really don't know for sure that it all happened on the same day. Uh, you know, it's really even hard to place in the calendar w- when the Buddha lived. And, you know, certainly to know when exactly these events transpired is difficult. But in the Theravada tradition, it's usually in the fifth full moon of the year, which generally falls in May. Um, And it's celebrated in different ways around the world. In Sri Lanka, people make beautiful lanterns. They hold parades, put lights in their houses, you know, probably much like we do on Christmas. And in Asia, there's often, other places in Asia, often candlelight processions, and people make offerings and chant, and many will sit up through the evening. In Tibet, or Tibetan people, they tend to celebrate the whole month, and they celebrate it by way of doing meritorious deeds, of making offerings, prayers, prostrations, circumambulations of holy sites and making a strong determination to overcome unwholesome mind states. So really bringing it into a level of practice in our lives. But it is this time that we can reflect upon what the practice has done for us, the power of the practice, Actually, just today, I had such a strong reminder. And, you know, it was uh, not anything that I can (laughs) brag about, (laughs) but it was was an amazing experience, and so I will share it with you. Something happened during the day where my weak little button, you know, the, the button that you don't like to go near, was pushed. And what emerged was rage. Really strong anger. You know, as strong as I have known anger to be. And it was, fortunately there was blame in the mind, but the person that I would have blamed wasn't there so no one was recipient of that anger, although someone bore witness to it. And then the story was so strong and there was this time of being lost in it And fortunately, and this is what I see, that that time of being lost in it was so much less than in earlier times in my life. And then it was like, you know, hearing the voice of blame to me says, wait a minute, look, see what's happening. I know it because I so often had blame in my life before. Everybody else was responsible for my discomfort. And so it's really become a mindfulness bell for me. And so hearing the voice of blame like, and recognizing that this is something that I've gotten upset about in the past. So it was like, whoa, what's going on here? What's the message? What can be learned from this? And just with that, there was a whole shift. It wasn't the world against me. It wasn't just, oh, poor me. There was this looking, what's happening and, you know, it wasn't clear. You know, I, it wasn't easy to see what, where the mind was getting sucked into. But by being in the process with it, it actually shifted really quickly. And then out of that, there there was humility, a sense of really, you know, seeing that these tendencies are still there, seeing how important mindfulness is, and feeling the pain of what happens when one gets caught. There was also in that moment the, rec- the recognition in the external world of what needed to happen. What, you know, that, that you know, I personally don't just throw anger around and think it's okay That it's not that I want to suppress the anger, but I need to be responsible within it. And so, you know, just taking action that, um, you know, for someone who was around with the explosion. And then this sense of forgiveness to myself for having gotten caught. And then just the, the feeling of dedication Strengthening. That's like, what else is there to do? You know, that to move forward from this with a renewed conviction, with renewed energy. And the gratitude came. You know, in the past, this could have been months, <laughs> years working itself out. And just in a short period of time, Moving through, and it just reminded me how valuable this work is. And it also brought with it just such an immense sense of gratitude to the Buddha. And t- tonight is really speaking from that gratitude you know, that this man, what he did, you know, and really to remember he was a human being and he was like us, you know, and <laughs> he's, he saw it and he took a stand against, not again I don't want to say against, he took a stand with these mind states, with greed, hatred and delusion to come to understand in his own mind, to find freedom, I wanted to share with you a chant that is often chanted that is about the qualities of the Buddha. I first learned this chant when I was a nun in Sagaing Hills. I was living in a nunnery where nobody except for one person spoke English and I didn't often see that person who spoke English. So, you know, it was really living... Without the commonality or being able to use language to connect with people, and the abbess of the nunnery there was a beautiful woman. You know, she to me just embodied many qualities that the Buddha da- does, um, and just seeing it in the, her in the female form was so inspiring to me. And she was also very humble and gentle. And kind, I could see that in the way that people related to her, and she so desperately wanted to teach me the Dhamma. she you know you could just see it it was they, they used to reflect on thirty two parts of the body there, and so she would just sit there pointing to the different parts of the body, and that that 's all she could do. It was very sweet, but one of the other things that she did um, is we would walk around the hills together. And Sagain Hills is so beautiful that there's the Irrawaddy River and there's a lot of nunneries, monasteries, and pagodas, you know, just dotting all of the hills. There's many monastics, many monks and nuns. And we would just walk around the hills together, you know, and Sometimes there was challenges. She was like my mother at times. If a car would come by, she would grab on my arm, pull me away. <laughs> it could be challenging because I felt like a grown up. <laughs> but anyhow, on these walks, she would, one day, she started chanting this chant. And I could just tell by the way she was chanting it, I was meant to recite it. And one of the things I'm not good at is language. It was—it's uh, uh, very difficult, and so. She, but I was supposed to remember what she was chanting and chant it. And sometimes she would quiz me when other people were around, you know, asking me to chant it. Um, but for me. I think just a poignancy of it being on the qualities of the Buddha comes from walking through Sagain Hills, chanting this. So I, I will share it first with you, and then just to touch upon a few other reflections. Arahamsamwasambudho <laughs> Vichacharana Sampano, Sukato, Loka Vidu, Anuttaro, Parisa Sarati, Sata Deva Manusam, Buddha Bhagavata. just to share the translation of this. Araham, it implies worthiness and freedom from the forces of greed, hatred and delusion. That night, sitting under the Bodhi tree, as the Buddha confronted the forces of Mara, as He came to understand his own mind. It made him a worthy recipient of one's gratitude, respect. His mind in word, action, thought was no longer tainted by the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion. Sama Sambudo. He attained perfect knowledge by himself. It's said to be not so easy to do this on your own to awaken without a teacher. He had followed teachers of his time, but he had also found a limit to where their teachings took him. He had not discovered the mind that was unbound, free. It was through the power of his own resolve that he freed the mind, On the night of his enlightenment, he said, Through many a birth in existence I wandered, seeking but not finding the builder of this house. Sorrowful is repeated birth. O house builder, thou art seen. Thou shalt build no houses again, and thy rafters are broken. The ridgepole is shattered. Mind attains the unconditioned. Achieved is the end of craving. The rafters of the self created house are the attachment, aversion, conceit, false views. The ridgepole that supports it is ignorance, not seeing things for what they are. The shattering of the ridgepole happens when wisdom comes forth and the mind attains the unconditioned. Vichacharana Sampano This implies that the Buddha possesses eight knowledges and fifteen qualities of conduct. The knowledges come from seeing clearly, comprehensively, understanding the three characteristics, not being bound by ordinary perception that keeps us encased in the shell of personality. He was no more attached to or bewildered by the five aggregates of clinging. was implied that he had obtained supernormal powers omniscience he used this to help others for the benefit of others being able to see into others minds to understand their conditioning their tendencies and to see what could help free them He had qualities of conduct that reflected a noble one not causing harm to others not being lost in the world of sense desire always awake no hindrance being able to overwhelm him. I like that idea. (laughs) He also had fully developed faith, conviction, knowing what was trustworthy, where to place one's heart upon, He was said to have mindfulness in all actions, whatever he was doing. That hiri and otapa, which Joseph had spoken about, I think it was last week, could be wrong, but hiri being the quality of moral shame, modesty, conscientiousness, which comes from self-respect. And otapa, it's the fear of blame or moral dread that comes from respect for others not wanting to do what would be harmful. Sugato implies one who has gone well, fared well to a happy destiny because of his practice because of wisdom coming forth in body, speech, and mind, there was a happy destination. Loka vidu means one who clearly knows the world. He understood how things happened, the way the world has run, how all things come to be, how good karma bears good fruit, unwholesome karma bears unwholesome fruit. He understood cause and effect Anutaro Purisadama Sarati it implies the tamer of the untamed our untamed minds he found a way to tame sata deva manusam teacher of gods and men 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 and women <laughs> it was said that you know during the day maybe he spoke to humans at night he taught the devas celestial beings No other realms his words went far beyond what we hear Budo awake like a lotus in full bloom Bagawa one who breaks the wheel of birth and death, of ignorance and desire, of attachment and causation. He went the full way. And then he spent the remainder of his life teaching people the way. And it's because of that, the practice that we do, these teachings are here today. I'd like to speak a little bit about the refuges. This is what we chant at the beginning of the Dharma Talks. And, you know, it probably all, for each of us has different meanings. For me, it's been a part of my practice to discover what they mean. Because I really didn't begin the practice to become a Buddhist. You know, I came because there was suffering. and wanted enlightenment, have you know, no idea what that meant, but wanted freedom from this suffering. And ah, what I found in my own life is that what was once difficult, you know, when I first turned up at a retreat with monastics, and you know, we did the refuges in precepts and, and you know, we were bowing to the monks. It was so painful, it was so hard. And then it was really out of doing the practice that there came a deeper understanding of what is pointed to through the refuges and what they how they were meaningful in my life and also came with that a sense of gratitude. So the refuges are often called triple gems. They are that which is precious, beautiful, and indestructible. By taking refuge, it's looking to see what is trustworthy, what is reliable, what we can place our hearts upon. And the Buddha pointed to three things that we could take refuge in. To the Buddha himself, which has different levels of meaning. We can relate to taking refuge in the Buddha by taking refuge in the historical man. His being a human being pointing to the potential that we all have we can take refuge in the buddha mind that is inherent inherent it wasn't specific to buddha himself but is something that is inherent and often in our lives we forget this we get caught in our struggles and, what you know, what I found by taking refuge in the Buddha is being caught up in that struggle and somehow remembering that even though in that moment this potential is not recognized, it is still there. It means in that moment that I'm not the sum total of what I'm caught in. You know, that there, there is something bigger than this small sense of I, me, and mine. We may find it easier to relate to by taking refuge in the qualities of the Buddha or of Buddha mind. These are some of the qualities that I just mentioned. Also, uh, the ten paramis, the ten requisites for enlightenment. These are the qualities of generosity, virtue, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resolve, loving kindness, and equanimity. Qualities that are present when the mind is not caught in greed, hatred, and delusion. Qualities that blossom in our hearts as wisdom comes forth, naturally present. So taking refuge in the Buddha, the mind that is wise, noble, the potential of Buddha nature. So we all have this potential And yet it's not realized. We will often experience states of fear, anxiety, frustration, despair. And the journey between being caught in these states and being freed from the impact or oppression of these states is that of following the path, following the teachings that lead to the end of suffering. And this is taking refuge in the Dharma. It can be taking refuge in the teachings, the teachings of liberation, which are a combination of wisdom and skillful means. Wisdom, seeing things as they are, and the skillful means, that which supports this seeing. Taking refuge in the lawfulness of life. To me, this is a huge refuge. And this is the refuge I found today in the midst of my anger. Knowing that things are unfolding according to natural laws. What's happening is not a mistake. What's happening is not separate from the Dhamma. It helps us to surrender to the way of things. To be able to have that capacity to be with in order to understand. We don't need to go somewhere else. This body, this mind... Is where the truth can be revealed. We find in our lives that we can take refuge at times when we might feel very vulnerable. Maybe a doctor has told us that we have some serious illness. And we turn to our practice. It doesn't take away the disease, the illness, but it helps us to be with what is unfolding. It helps us not to feel a victim of, but to see what is happening, to bear witness, and to learn. I was reading through some notes today of mine, and uh, I was—I I saw something that Sayadaw uh, Utejaniya had said to me when I was last in Burma, last August. He said, just keep looking to the Dharma, it's what's inspiring. You know, and if we just keep looking to the truth, the inspiration comes, it's inspiring. you know, And we see that at times in our practice, When, you know, we've seen something in a new way. The truth revealing itself. What is more interesting? If there's something more interesting, I don't know it. (laughs) It, Just to keep looking. Seeing the nature of things rather than being caught on the level of story. On the level of self. Taking refuge in the Dhamma, the truth, the way of things, the teachings, the practice. Taking refuge in the Sangha. This too has different meanings. Taking refuge in the Noble Sangha, the Arya Sangha, those who have awakened. It's just brings home again that sense of possibility. What others have done, we can do. I remember uh, it was the same trip to Burma, and it was not an easy time. You know, being a nun, You know, as I talk about it, walking around the hills of Sakain you know, can have a romantic flavor to it, but it wasn't filled with romance. <laughs> it, I mean, it was incredibly powerful. And actually a piece of the power was, one aspect was that when I ordained, was a sense of touching into the lineage, It brought home a sense of lineage in a way that I hadn't known, Um, and I will come back to lineage because we are a part of that lineage. But it was just kind of a unique experience of that. But the piece I was going to say was that one day I was sitting there in a state of distress. That you know I, I went through some challenges you know, from the frustration of not being able to talk to people, um, which I knew would be there. I hadn't expected that to be different, but uh, there was just a lot of things that happened that I hadn't expected would happen. I was treated like royalty, you know, that being a foreign nun, you know, was just, uh, um, you know, when there were, I would sit at the table and everyone else would sit on the floors in some other place, but I had to be at this table you know so i had I ate separate from everyone else um, there was just a lot of things because of that i you know i felt what it might be like to be a queen or a princess and, you know, to live that far removed from people, when my whole motivation for going to Burma was to live amongst the nuns as a nun and just to really see what their lives were like. And yet here I was in this little castle on the hill, you know, my kuti was very beautiful and it was all given out of very generous spirit. So, you know, I want to say that, but it was a hard, hard time for me, really up against my mind and, you know... I remember just sitting down and and having to go, okay, you teach meditation, what do you teach? (laughs) How do I practice? (laughs) It it was a real challenge. (laughs) Uh, You know, I just had the hindrances day after day. And, you know, just to keep going in the day was difficult. Um, To keep there was just, anyhow, I'll forget about all the <laughs> challenges. They were there. And so there I am in this totally mortified state. And then I look up at this picture on the wall. It's a painting. And it was of the Buddha and some monks following around, along behind him with alms ball. And in that moment, it was just looking up and seeing what in that my mind was right then was Arya Sangha, the noble ones people who had faced what I was facing, people who had faced this same struggle and had awakened. And it just was, oh yeah, it's possible. This hurts. This is really painful. It can be done. It was not giving up in the face of that. And that's you know one level of sangha. There's also all of the monks and the nuns who have ordained since the time of the Buddha. To me, you know, it's like seeing a little chain of beings back to the time of Buddha. The people who, you know, dedicate their lives to this, to the practice, to the teachings. Having lived as a nun, I know some of the challenges. It's not always easy. And yet, there can be just tremendous inspiration in having, being around the ordained Sangha. And then there's the level of community, like-minded people coming together to practice To really walk the path of liberation. To have a shared aspiration. And that's what we take refuge in. Because we will find that amongst our sangha, there are rubs. There are people (laughs) that agitate, irritate. And you think, how can I take refuge in that? But it's the nobility of our aspirations. This is what we take refuge in. And... Our peers, they help us so much. They help us to have that companionship. They help us to stay on track. They help, you know, somebody can point out when we're really wavering, floundering, you know, really deluded. Have you ever been really deluded? (laughs) It's helpful to have a friend point it out. And remembering that we are a part of this lineage. For the teachings and the practice to continue, it needs beings like us to carry it forth. This again came home to me after I'd been in Burma ordained as a nun and came back and a couple years later heard that the abbess of that nunnery had died as had her great aunt, who was just this delightful, joyful being, who was really losing her bearings, never sure if it was night or day, had been a nun her whole life, was just such a joyful presence to be around. And it ended up that they died within two months of each other. And when I heard that they had died, it had a very strong impact I realized that in my own mind that that nunnery was a place I could always go back to as home. It was a place where I had teachers, people of inspiration, and they were gone. And with that came a feeling of responsibility, a necessity to do this work so it can be carried forth. We are all a part of this lineage. One definition that I heard of Sangha, which I love, is the living stream through which the Dhamma comes to us. It's a living tradition, heart to heart, mind to mind, going back to the time of the Buddha. There's one other meaning of sangha which I, I, I don't know if I hear it talked about so much but I think it's incredibly important and this ties into the refuges being both outer and inner. It's about becoming a spiritual friend to ourselves. I don't know how it's been in your life But I know I have been my own worst enemy. And to find the capacity to help myself when it's difficult rather than turning on myself, it's invaluable. So the Sangha, the Arya Sangha, the fully awakened ones, the ordained Sangha, the monks and the nuns who've carried forth these teachings and practice, the community of like-minded people, and learning to be a spiritual friend to ourselves. We can have outer expressions of these refuges. But really, to look within, if it only stayed in the outer world, it would be dogma, belief. But the Buddhist teachings are come and see, come and discover for yourself. these refuges are only refuges to the degree to which they manifest in our lives. Letting it be an exploration, the understanding deepening so that we can discover how they are true refuge, worthy of our hearts, worthy of placing our hearts upon. They are what can be looked to. So what I'd like to do now is first we'll spend a couple of minutes reflecting and then we will chant together the refuges and precepts and we'll follow that up with the sharing of blessings. So as we sit to reflect upon what we place our hearts upon, where we find refuge, what gives us shelter from the storm, Recognizing the nobility of our hearts in wanting to know truth, wanting to live in a way that doesn't perpetuate suffering. Our practice is that of nourishing these aspirations. As we chant the refuges and precepts, if you feel to, Picturing yourself sitting before that which you take refuge in. Maybe surrounded by all the awakened ones. Asking them to bear witness to your aspirations Namo tassa bhagavato arahato Sambudasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa, Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Budang Saranang Gacchami Dhamang Saranang Gacchami Sangam Saranang Gacchami Dūti Budang pi saranang saranaṁ gacchāmi Dūti ām pi saranaṁ gacchāmi Dūti sangam saranaṁ gacchāmi Tāti Budang saranaṁ Tatiyampi, tamang saranangu chami. Tatiyampi, sangam saranangu chami. Panati pata, veramini, sikapadang samadhiyami. Adinadana, where omni I, si samadhyami? Abramacharya, where omni Musawada, where Sikaparang I, si Sura, Maria, Machapama Datanah where sikaparang Parang, Samadiyami, Wikala Bojana, Where sikaparang Parang, Samadiyami, Nacha, Gita, Wadita, Dasana Malaganda, Vilepana, Dharana, Mandana, Wi sanatana vairamane sikapadang samadhiyami utcha mahasayana vairamane Sikapadang samadhiyami Itam me silam magapalanayana ♫